Well, today we are blessed to have a guest speaker with us. His name is Michael Spencer. He's a pastor for over 23 years until God called him into Life Training Institute, where he goes around uh, the nation and speaks on this very topic that he's going to be talking about today, including several high schools. And uh, I first heard him speak last May. Uh, it was the uh, annual fundraiser banquet for Compassion Pregnancy Center. Um, my wife and I had planned on going to the banquet. We had tickets and everything. And then we found out it was our son's uh, kindergarten production, so we couldn't go. But the next day they had a uh, function for pastors, and there's about 12 of us in a room. And he gave the most compelling law and gospel presentation on a very serious and sensitive and important topic I'd ever heard. So I said to him last May, I said, would you ever be willing to come up to Michigan and, uh, and, and preach? And he said, yeah, I just live in Ohio, which we won't hold against him. But he's like, well, uh, you know, um, I, I would love to do that. I have family here. So he drove up last night. He stayed with family, and he's here today. And I know you're going to be blessed by his word. So you please welcome Michael Spencer as he comes to share. Thank you. Good morning. Yes, I live in Ohio, but I'm from the Motor City. I grew up... In, in Warren, and so I feel like I'm home today. And it is so good um, to be with you, to a joy to worship uh, with you, and, and just so glad to be here today, to be part of this series, Value Everyone. What a great um, series that you are in, and I'm blessed to be a part of this today and to address you on such an important subject, uh, such an important topic, and that is the sanctity or the sacredness of human life. One week from tomorrow marks the 45th anniversary of the notorious Supreme Court decisions Roe v. Wade and Doe v. Bolton, which together um, brought us legalized abortion through all nine months of pregnancy, resulting in approximately 60 million abortions since 1973 and approximately 2,700 abortions every day in the United States. This is an important and yet a very difficult subject to address and I recognize that for many, and I'm sure even some here this morning, this is a deeply personal subject that invokes painful memories and feelings of guilt. And I want you to know I am sensitive to that this morning. This is the reason that this subject should be addressed with compassion and with grace, and that's something that I intend to do this morning. But this is not a reason that the church should go silent on this subject as the overwhelming majority of Catholic and Protestant and evangelical churches have done. Because if the church remains silent, more babies will die and more mothers and fathers will struggle with a lifetime of guilt and regret. These are not competing interests. We can speak up for those who have no voice. We can do it boldly and unapologetically and yet we can hold out the word of life, the gospel of grace for those who have been wounded by abortion. In fact, if we fail to do, fulfill either of those two obligations, we will have failed to love as Christ has called us to love. The church is called to be a thundering, protective voice for those who are marginalized and oppressed. And no one is more oppressed or marginalized than the unborn. The church is also called to be a redemptive, grace-extending community for those who are facing unplanned pregnancies or who have made abortion decisions in their past. I am grateful for Shepherd's Gate for churches like this, and they are rare, sadly. But I'm grateful for a church that, that does value everyone and a church that puts her money where her mouth is in supporting ministries like Abigail Ministries and Compassion Pregnancy Center as well as many other things that you are involved in as a church. And I'm even more grateful for shepherds like Pastor Tim who do not shrink back 
from dealing with difficult subjects like abortion. I am convinced that where a pastor stands on the subject of abortion tells us an awful lot about his character, his faith, his commitment to God and his word, and his commitment to his flock. And so you are blessed to have the, the pastoral leadership that you have here in your pastoral leaders. So thank you, Pastor Tim, and to the rest of your pastoral staff as well. As you um, may be aware, there's a great deal of confusion surrounding the subject of abortion, even within the body of Christ today. For many, we see, many people see abortion as a political issue, therefore it's, it's off limits for the church, uh, they think. And many others see this as, well, that's a women's rights issue, and this is best left to women to decide. Still others see abortion as kind of a, just another issue, you know, one of many issues that really doesn't warrant, doesn't deserve the attention of a Sunday morning sermon. And it's the confusion behind these um, responses to abortion that really demands that the church address this issue. Um, responding rightly to abortion requires us to think rightly about abortion. And so what I'm hoping to do today is to bring clarity to this subject for you and to do that by addressing four questions and then answering those four questions for you. These are going to serve as my outline. They're in your bulletin. They're also going to appear on the screen behind me today. And basically, I'm going to to deal with four questions, a science question, a philosophy question, a theological question, and finally, an ethical or a moral question. So that will be our outline. But I want to start my time this morning with reading a passage of Scripture to you from Luke's Gospel. If you'd like to turn there, you can do that. Short passage, I'll read it for you. Luke's Gospel, chapter 10, and this is uh, starting in verse 25 and and through uh, through verse 37. This is the the very famous story, the parable that Jesus tells of the Good Samaritan. I'm guessing that these are familiar words to most of you this morning, but I hope you will hear these afresh as we consider the context here of the sacredness of human life. So I'm going to read those for you. Starting in verse 25, we read these words. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself and he asked Jesus, and so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Don't miss that. He didn't just ignore the need of this man. He went out of his way in order to avoid moral responsibility for this man in the ditch. Continuing on. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. You know, the question that prompted this parable, and who is my neighbor, is really the question that's at the heart of the abortion debate today in our nation. The question is not really a question of reproductive rights or women's rights or choice. It's really a question of who counts as one of us. That's really what we're debating when we debate this issue. Um, And so I want to address these four questions. Let's start with the science question in responding 
to this. The, this, the science question is simply this. What are the preborn? In other words, we're asking the same question that the expert in the law asked. Who is my neighbor? Is the preborn, are the preborn my neighbor? Do I have a moral duty to them? Now, we simplify the abortion debate by focusing like a laser beam on this question. What are they? As Greg Kokel says, if the unborn are human, or I'm sorry, if the unborn are not human, no justification for elective abortion. I'm sorry, I'm messing, forgive me, I'm messing this up. If the unborn are not human, no justification for elective abortion is necessary. But if the unborn are human, no justification for elective abortion is adequate. And he's exactly right. This is the question. What are the preborn? I'm just going to do some real basic fifth grade level science with you here for just a quick minute. From the moment that you were conceived in your mother's womb, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. Now, that is the science of human embryology that I'm giving you right now. This is the consensus of human embryologists, that you were distinct. You were in your mother and dependent upon your mother for blood, nutrients, oxygen, and the protection of her womb, but you were not your mom. You were your own being at the earliest stage as a single-cell zygote. You were a distinct human being with your own genetic code, your own blood type, a gender, and a race that were potentially separate or different than your mother's. So clearly, you were a distinct individual. Not only were you distinct, but you were living. And by living, I simply mean that you were alive and growing. That the things that define living organisms were present in you at that earliest stage of your development. Things like metabolizing food for energy, growing through cellular reproduction, and responding to stimuli or to the environment that you were in. All of those were present in you. And not only were you distinct and living, but according to the science of human embryology, you were whole. And by whole, I mean that you were genetically complete. In other words, you didn't come into being as one thing and become another thing. You started out as a human being and you continued to grow within that nature. We oftentimes hear people refer to the unborn, and I don't think they do this with malice. I think it's done out of ignorance. But we often hear people, and maybe you've done it, refer to the unborn at the earlier stage of development as a fertilized egg. Well, in the science of human embryology, there's no such thing. There's such a thing as the the process of fertilization. But once that process has completed and conception has taken place, you no longer have an egg, nor do you have a sperm. You have a human being with his or her own genetic code. So you're a distinct, living, and whole. Um, uh, uh, Randy Alcorn, an author that I'm sure many of you are familiar with and a great voice for the unborn, said this. He said, something non-human does not become human by getting older and bigger. Whatever is human is human from the beginning. And he's exactly right. Now, interestingly, even some abortionists like uh, Curtis Boyd and many pro-choice philosophers like David Boone and Peter Singer and Mary Elizabeth Williams and many, many others, the late Christopher Hitchens, many of them are quick to acknowledge the full humanity of the unborn child. So that's the science question. Science can tell us what something or someone is, but it can't go beyond that. And so we're going to go to the second question, and that's the philosophy question. The philosophy question is simply this. What is it that makes us as human beings valuable in the first place? Are we valuable because of what we can do Or are we valuable simply because of the kind of thing that we are? Well, the pro-life position, the Christian worldview on this, says that we believe that all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, most notably the right to life. This is the view, and please hear this. Your view, assuming that you are a pro-lifer, and I'm assuming that you are, our view is the view that is inclusive and tolerant. We're the ones that say that every human life matters. Black, white, rich, poor, Jew, Gentile, born and unborn. Every life should be valued, cherished, and protected legally. This is the only unshakable foundation for human equality. 
Every individual, regardless of his size, race, gender, or any other superficial distinction, has inherent moral worth simply by virtue of being created in God's image. This is the belief that is rooted in the idea that we are more than our parts, more than our functions, that there's something else that defines us, something internal, something intrinsic, and it is our nature, our essence, as beings created in the image of God. Now, uh, to illustrate this point, some of you maybe will know the name Samuel Alexander Armas. I'm guessing most of the overwhelming majority of you don't know that name. But when I show you his photo, you're going to know him. Many of you are. Because in 1999, Samuel Alexander Armas was about 21 weeks of gestation in his mother's womb. So just over halfway through the pregnancy. And through some prenatal testing, it was discovered that Samuel had a condition called spina bifida, as you know, a pretty serious condition. And the surgeon said to the mother, Mom, if you will let us perform surgery on you, we can go into your womb, into your uterus and we can perform surgery on your son and substantially correct this problem well of course she granted permission and on the day of the surgery not only was the surgical team there but they invited in a photographer who snapped some stunning photos and the photo that I'm going to show you made the front page of USA Today and what you're going to see is this mother's womb opened up with a small incision in it and this little guy Samuel's arm has flopped out and he's touching the surgeon's glove you remember this here it is Fascinating photo. Stunning image. People were amazed by this. People were talking about this across the water cooler. Oh my goodness, did you see that? That's so fascinating. Because I think for a lot of people, this was an aha moment. Like, oh my goodness, there's somebody in there. Yeah, it's called pregnancy. There is somebody in there. And that's the point. Now, I'm going to fast forward the clock of Samuel's life by 10 years and show you another photo. Here it is. You, re- you recognize that left arm? You've seen it before. He was holding a surgeon's glove. Now he's holding some swimming ribbons. But he is the same boy. All kinds of things about him have changed, but one thing has not changed. His nature, his essence, his being. He's the same kid now as he was then. And so if he's an intrinsically valuable human being at 10 years old deserving legal protection, then he has always been and always will be. This is why abortion is so evil. Because it unjustly takes the lives of little people like Samuel, and people like you and me at their earlier stage of development. Conversely, the so-called pro-choice position divorces humanness from personhood. It acknowledges, many of them anyway, most people that I encounter on university and high school campuses and in my travels, most people are quick to acknowledge the humanity of the unborn child regardless of what side of the issue they're on. But what they deny now is the personhood. So you'll hear this. Yes, it's a human, but it's not a person, and it doesn't become one until, fill in the blanks, until it's sentient, until it's self-aware, until it has a heartbeat, until it has brainwaves, until it's wanted, or unless it's normal. And these are the arbitrarily chosen standards or tests that the other side appeals to to justify killing you in that earlier stage of your development. Christopher Kazor rightly refers to this view, the so-called pro-choice view, as the performance view. Because the, the preborn must meet some arbitrarily chosen test or standard that the powerful have established for them the weak. And again, if you don't measure up, then you are treated as trash. This view, please hear me this morning, the so-called pro-choice view is intolerant. It is exclusivistic. exclusivistic. It is at its very core a position of bigotry. Because the minute you divide the room or the womb based on subjectively chosen standards, to determine who should live and who should die, you have effectively destroyed the foundation for human equality. 
There are only four differences between the adult that you are today and the embryo that you once were. Now, these are real differences, but not one of these four differences justifies killing you in the earlier stage of your development because these are not morally significant differences, and here they are. Just remember the acronym SLED, S-L-E-D. The S stands for size. The L stands for level of development. The E stands for environment or location, and the D stands for degree of dependency. Now, those are real differences. I'm acknowledging that, but those are not morally significant differences. We don't hold any one of those four uh, tests against you now as a 30- or 40-year-old. Why would we do that at any other stage of your development? Clinton Wilcox, who serves on our staff at Life Training Institute, rightly points out that the question of when human life begins is not a difficult one. It only becomes difficult if you want to justify killing people. And he's exactly right. Now, this brings us to the third question. First question, the science question, what are they? They're distinct living and whole human beings. The second question, the philosophy question, what makes us valuable? Well, it's not what we do, it's who we are. We're not human doings, we are human beings. And this brings us to the third question, and this is the theology question. Is the Bible silent, as so many claim today, on the subject of abortion? In other words, if abortion is so wrong, why doesn't the Bible speak against it? Why don't we see that word anywhere in the Old or New Testament? And it's true that we don't. If you're, um, if you're a, a fan of the TV show The View... Uh, you should repent. Uh, uh, but if you are, you may have seen a year and a half or so, two years ago, when Whoopi Goldberg, speaking about abortion, said this, and she was talking about the Bible. She said, there's nothing in the book, the Bible, that says anything about abortion. Let's make sure that the Ten Commandments are the Ten. There's only Ten. Now, Whoopi is making a faulty assumption here that is common even within the church. And the assumption is that what the Bible is not expressly con- condemn, it therefore condones. But this is silly, I mean, nowhere does the Bible expressly condemn torturing puppies or pouring toxins into our rivers. Are are we to conclude that those behaviors, those activities are okay? Well, of course not. We know that torturing puppies and pouring toxins into our rivers are wrong because the Bible, um, but because of, by inference, because the Bible commands us, calls us to steward that which God has created. And so we know by inference these things are wrong. The Bible is not silent on abortion any more than the Bible is silent on suffocating somebody with a pillow. The Bible condemns condemns the unjust taking of innocent human life in Exodus chapter 20, which Whoopi referred to. She said there's only ten commandments. Apparently she doesn't realize that the sixth commandment is thou shall not murder. So the Bible clearly condemns the unjust taking of innocent human life. And keep in mind that abortion is simply a method of killing innocent human beings. And we have a lot of methods of killing innocent human beings. Since Cain killed Abel, we have been devising methods to kill each other. And if the Bible were to record every, uh, explicitly record every uh, method of killing that was wrong, your Bible would look like the IRS tax code. It would be so thick, you wouldn't be able to carry it to church on a Sunday morning. And just as we don't need a Bible verse expressly condemning suffocating somebody with a pillow, we don't need one expressly condemning the method of murder that we call abortion. Nor do we need a Bible verse expressly condemning killing uh, the preborn any more than we need one expressly condemning the murder of freshmen or high school, uh, freshmen in high school or Hispanics. So that brings us to the fourth question and the final question, the moral or ethical question, and it is this: What is our duty? What is our duty to those who are marginalized, oppressed, and targeted for death by abortion, and to those who face unplanned pregnancies or are living? with decisions that they've made in the past about abortion. Let me talk first about our duty to the preborn threatened by abortion. At the very least, our duty is to expose this evil injustice of abortion. 
Ephesians chapter 5, verse 11 makes this very clear. Paul writes, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, somebody might object at that point and say, well, I don't think Paul was talking about abortion. And my response is maybe not, but that doesn't really matter, does it? Because if abortion is not a fruitless deed of darkness, I don't know what is. So whether Paul had that in mind in particular as he, as he wrote that verse is not relevant. What's relevant is does it apply? And certainly Ephesians 5.11 applies. We are called as the body of Christ to expose the evil injustice of abortion. Greg Kokel said that for most Christians, abortion is a yawner. And sadly, this is true. And this is true because most Christians have never seen the effects of abortion. They've heard about it. They know it's wrong, but they've never really come to terms with just how wrong it is. Greg Cunningham from California said it this way. He said, almost everyone knows intuitively that abortion is evil, but almost no one knows how evil it is until they've seen it because abortion is unspeakably evil. He's exactly right. I came to faith in Christ in the Rochester Park on September 10th of 1983 at 21 years old. The very next morning, Sunday morning, I was in church in Royal Oak. And about eight months, and I considered myself pro-choice. I wasn't rabidly pro-choice. I didn't debate it with anybody. I knew it was wrong, but I thought it was a necessary evil. But what happened was about eight months, nine months into my Christian faith, the church that I was attending in Royal Oak, the pastor showed the movie The Silent Scream. I walked in on a Wednesday night, saw that film, and walked out an hour, an hour later forever changed because I could not believe what I'd seen with my own eyes. But for some reason in our culture, we can see every evil under the sun, but we cannot see what abortion does to children. It seems there's no appropriate place to show it. And I think this is a tragedy. Nothing has the ability to awaken moral intuitions in us like an image. And so I'm going to show you this morning what abortion does to children. I want to say a couple things about this. I'm going to show you a video that's less than a minute long. You will not see an abortion being performed, but you will see the aftermath of abortion in all three trimesters because abortion is legal in all three trimesters. Now, this is very difficult to watch. I want to warn you. Moms and dads, if you do have little ones here uh, in the auditorium this morning, I'm going to ask you that you, you would just cover their eyes. The video is less than a minute long, but it is difficult to watch. If you've had an abortion or you've been responsible for an abortion decision, I want to draw your words to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, that, is, that speaks of Jesus 700 years before he came to the womb of Mary, a messianic prophecy, prophecy that says that he was crushed for our iniquities that the punishment that brought us peace was upon him and by his wounds we are healed. That's the gospel in one Old Testament verse and that's the spirit in which I show this to you this morning. There is no sin so great, including the sin of abortion, but that God's grace is not greater still. And I want to say more about that as, as I close this morning. But with no further ado, we're going to show this. If, if you prefer to look away, you can do that. There's no audio narration other than a musical track, so if you choose not to watch, you're not going to hear anything described, okay? But I'm going to plead with you this morning. If you've never actually seen abortion, I'm going to plead with you, if you can stomach it this morning, would you please watch this video? So with no further ado, we'll go ahead and show that.
I know that's very difficult to see, and I'm sure some of you are seeing that for the first time, but that is the real face of choice in America. That is what Planned Parenthood does not want you to see. That is what Planned Parenthood does not want your children and your grandchildren to see. But that is what abortion does to little girls and boys. Holocaust survivor Elie Wiesel said that indifference is always the friend of the enemy for it benefits the aggressor. Aborted children are the ultimate victims of indifference in our culture today. And when the church is silent, babies die and young mothers and fathers are saddled with remorse. Surrendering these little lambs from our own congregations to the abortionist's knife without a fight calls into question the truthfulness of our gospel before a watching world. It reinforces in their minds that the preborn are indeed disposable and unworthy of our love or of our gospel. In the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite walked by, passed by on the other side to avoid moral responsibility. And although they are fictional characters, we despise them for it. We despise them for it. If there's one common refrain from those outside of the church, it's that the church is filled with a bunch of hypocrites. Now, this is a wildly exaggerated accusation. You know that, and I know that. I think many of them know that as well. But it is, a, but it is an accusation that we encourage when we ignore the least of these who are in the crosshairs of choice. When it comes to how the preborn are viewed in our culture today, most churches have a great deal in common with Planned Parenthood and the abortion industry. Because both, uh, both view precious preborn children as miserably inconvenient. For the abortionists, this becomes the justification to dismember them. And for many, many churches, this becomes the justification to ignore them as the abortionist dismembers them. But which is worse? Abortionists who don't believe in the humanity or the personhood of the unborn child and therefore kills them or Christians who recognize the humanity and personhood of the preborn but do nothing to rescue them as they are led away to slaughter. I am grateful, very grateful, for pastors like yours who champion the cause of the weak and the oppressed of the, of the preborn. But you know as well as I do that in most Catholic, Protestant, and Evangelical churches, the overwhelming majority of shepherds have abandoned their duty to speak up for those who have no voice. They have become tongue-tied. Could the heroes of Hebrews 11, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, who administer justice, could they have imagined a day when shepherds called by God to protect the whole flock, even those yet to be born, would instead surrender their little lambs to the abortionist's knife without so much as a whimper from their pulpits? God, help us. We hear this objection that speaking up for the preborn will distract from the gospel. Notice that no one in the body of Christ ever argues this way with respect to victims of sex, sex trafficking or homelessness. Only the preborn are treated with such contempt. Only in hell could one, rescue, could one view rescuing children from abortion as a distraction from the gospel. Jesus rebuked his disciples for this kind of pernicious thinking when he said, suffer the children to come to me. Far from a distraction, rescuing children from abortion is the gospel in action because responding to abortion is a gospel issue. We have to ask ourselves, is our gospel only for those who are conveniently loved and rescued or is it for everyone? The lesson of the parable of the Good Samaritan is that we have a moral duty to sacrifice for our neighbors whether they've been beaten and abandoned in a ditch 
or denied legal protection and abandoned in the womb. One's location does not determine one's value, nor does it exempt us from our moral duty to victims. In Proverbs 24.11, we read these words, Rescue those being led away to death. Hold back those staggering towards slaughter. If you say, but we knew nothing about this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who guards your life know it? Responding to abortion is a gospel issue. It is a loving your neighbor as yourself issue. Legalized abortion is our Goliath. An indifference toward the preborn who are threatened by abortion is amputating our spirit and disfiguring the soul of the church in America. In his book, Thoughts Upon the African Slave Trade, John Newton, the former slave turned Christian who uh, penned the, uh, the great Christian hymn, Amazing Grace, he wrote this of slavery, and I think you will see the connection to or the application to our battle um, for life today. He said, I know of no method of getting money, not even that of robbing for it upon the highway, which has so direct a tendency to efface the moral sense, to rob the heart of every gentle and humane disposition, and to harden it like steel against all impressions of sensibility. Abortion is like slavery in this sense. But it not only effaces the moral sense of those who perform abortions, it hardens like steel the hearts of those who sit by idly as churches or as children from our own churches are aborted. The church's indifference with regard to abortion is damaging our gospel witness. What are non-Christians to think of us when we speak affectionately of Jesus, the lover of children, and yet we don't love children enough to speak up for them or to sacrifice on their behalf? I want to just close here by talking about our duty now to those who are facing unplanned pregnancies or to those who have had abortions. And I know I'm speaking to some here this morning that this applies to. Now, the Sues from Compassion and from Abigail Ministries could speak more fully to this than I'm going to have time to do today. But let me just start by saying this. If you have had an abortion or you have been responsible for an abortion decision, Jesus promises not only to forgive you, he promises to put you back together emotionally. Philippians 1 talks about the sanctifying work of God through Christ, that when we come to faith in Christ, he he begins a work that he carries on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He doesn't just forgive you. He offers to heal you and to restore you. There is no sin so great, including the sin of abortion, but that God's grace is not greater still. If you've had an abortion, you don't need an excuse You need an exchange, Christ's forgiveness, his righteousness for your sin. You know what you need? You need the same thing every person in this room needs this morning. And you don't need it in a greater dose than the rest of us. Our duty as a church is to love those who are facing unplanned pregnancies or have been wounded by abortion to point them to the, to the one who died to forgive them. 1 John 1, 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we go silent in the body of Christ on this subject, we sentence those who've had abortions or have been responsible for them to suffer alone. We need to dispel the myth that speaking out against abortion will only inflict greater harm on those who have had abortions. My boss, Scott Klusendorf, the premier voice in pro-life apologetics in the United States and Canada today, said it this way. He said, silence does not spare women who've had abortions hurt. It spares them healing. And he is exactly right. And I'll add this. When the pulpit goes silent, 
when the church goes silent, we communicate one of two messages to those who've had abortions, both regrettable. Either abortion's not so bad, or the gospel's not so good, or both. Abortion's not so bad. If it were, my pastor would speak out against it. He speaks out against everything else. Or the gospel must not be so good. I must be the worst person in this room this morning. I must be the one who's committed the unpardonable sin because my pastor can't even mention my sin from the pulpit. God forbid that we would hide the message of redemption and hope and restoration from those who need it. Why would we hold this back? John 8, 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That's the message of the gospel. And we are portrayed as pro-lifers, as a bunch of men trying to control women, a bunch of people that just are out to destroy women's lives and control women. We're, We're told that we're waging a war on women, right? That's the narrative. Nothing could be farther from the truth. This is the place where women are loved. This is the place where men are loved. Your church is investing heavily in Abigail Ministries and in, in uh, the Compassion Pregnancy Center. And I'll just tell you, just follow the money. You want to know who the friend of, of my, friend of women is? Follow the money. Do you know that there are about 560 surgical abortion clinics in the United States today? Many of those owned and operated by men for financial profit off of women in crisis. Contrast that with nearly 2,700 pregnancy care centers that are run primarily by women, for women, at no cost to women. Free ultrasounds, free counseling, parenting classes, and on and on and on. Do the math. We are the friends of women and of men and of anybody who's been hurt, anybody who has sinned. Not to mention 300 maternity homes in the United States, and those aren't run by Planned Parenthood, I can tell you. They're run by the body of Christ. Being bound to Jesus and his gospel does not provide us refuge from the conflict over abortion, it demands our engagement. Love and compassion compel us to enter the battle. We love, 1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. When injustice is found, when the weak and vulnerable are targeted for death, when people are hurting, faithful Christians become rescuers, and there is a reason for this. It's because our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is the consummate rescuer. We stand on his shoulders when we speak up for those who have no voice and when we lead those who've been wounded to the cross where they can find not only forgiveness but wholeness again. God bless you. Pastor Tim. Can we thank Michael for being with us today? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you all. powerful truth. There's no way we could do this sermon series with not, without addressing uh, this topic and starting with this subject of from conception. Amen. So thank you, thank you for sharing your heart with thank passion. You. Thank you for having a spine you. and a heart. <laughs> Thanks. Um, but we, wa- we want to we wanna close with prayer. Uh, that's what we're going to do today uh, for Michael and for the Sus. I'm going to ask the Sus to come up. But on the back of your outline, he's actually going to be here in a couple weeks. And if God has stirred your heart this morning, you want to get more involved in this, in this ministry, then I would invite you to go and attend uh, the class that he's going to be doing in a couple weeks at a different church. And then also for the two Sues here that uh, we've been partnered with for many, many years, and I just feel privileged because our church in almost 38 years of history has always been a champion for the unborn. 
And uh, I asked our business administrator, Mark Thomas, if he wouldn't mind uh, pulling some numbers for us, because I want you guys to hear this. You guys know that 13% of what we bring in here as a church, we give right back out the doors, and that's for us to be able to partner with these organizations. And uh, last year, our church donated $12,000 to Compassion Pregnancy Center and $4,000 to Abigail Ministries. That's your donations through your offerings. And I want you to, I want you to hear this, that since 1997, we've been partnered with Abigail, Abigail Ministries for a combined total of $79,912 that our church has given to Abigail Ministries. Amen. Now, Compassion, we've been a partner with for a little bit longer. We've been partnered with you since 1993. And if you take everything that Shepherd's Gate has donated, it comes to $254,139 to help that organization. And we're going to continue to do that. We're going to continue to do that through our missions and charities. Here's the thing that I learned this week. Both of these organizations need more volunteers that would be willing to come to their centers, be willing to partner with them. I thought they were both fully staffed, but they said no, they've actually had some people that have had to move on to other things. And so maybe today God would stir your heart, whether it's to partner with Michael or to partner with these two local missions. And they're both available after the service in the fellowship hall. They both have booths out there. Make sure you stop by or make an appointment with them so that they can, uh, yeah, <laughs> so they can fight over you. They're right next to each other. Or volunteer for both. How about that? Uh, but we're going to close in prayer. I'm going to have Michael close in prayer. And if you guys wouldn't mind, would you just stretch your hands toward them? And if you're a volunteer here this morning, you volunteer at Compassion or Abigail, would you just stand? Because we want to include you in the prayer as well. So anybody that does actively, Joe's there. Anybody else that is, see why we need some more people? 10 o'clock, we got one person. Anybody else that volunteers? All right, so you're all going to go flood the booths after this. Okay, let's set your hands toward this. Michael, take us out. All right. Father, how sweet it is to be together as the body of Christ and to gather around your word and, and around the cause for life. We thank you for these ministries, for Abigail Ministries, for Compassion Pregnancy Center, for the, the work that they are doing in this community to love on young moms and, and young dads and to point them to the gospel and to, to advocate on behalf of their little ones. Father, we ask your anointing on their ministries. We ask your protection for their work. We pray, Father, that um, as this church stands with them, that many lives would be saved, that those who have been wounded by abortion would find healing and, and, and freedom, and that uh, those who are making tough decisions, that are making agonizing decisions, Father, that you would give them clarity of thinking through these counselors that their ministries provide. And Father, I thank you this morning for those in this room um, uh, who have had abortions and, and yet have found forgiveness. And we pray, Father, that, they, that this morning they would not leave here with hearts that are burdened, but rather with hearts that are free. Father, we pray for those in that respect. And then we pray for this church, Lord. And we, we are grateful for churches like this that are sadly so rare today, that are bold, that are uncompromising in their voice for those who have no voice and yet are compassionate and gracious, and I pray, Father, that you would bless Pastor Tim and the leadership here and each person that calls this home as they partner with these important ministries. We love you and we praise you for the joy it is to be your voice for those who have no voice. And it is in the name of Christ our Lord that we pray this today. Amen. 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 All right, can we give them a hand? They're going to head out and get a fellowship call. Michael's going to be at the door to greet you on your way out. Would you please stand as we give you the benediction this morning? Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. 
May he look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Once again, church, so proud of you. Thank you for being here this week. We really hope to see you here next week. God bless.